Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Black Death of the 1340s killed around a third of Europe's population. But after the 14th century, it didn't just pack up and go away. For the next 300 years, there were outbreaks of plague roughly every decade. Its lethality was such that it could wreak destruction on a massive scale. Its victims seemed arbitrary. Its symptoms were awful. Continual vomiting, fever, thirst, difficulty breathing, feeling drowsy but unable to sleep, pustules across the skin, and the distinctive black buboes or tumours that appeared at the neck, arms and groin. So painful, we're told, that sufferers cried for them to be cut out in an age before anaesthesia. And it not only killed horribly, but horribly quickly. Today we're going to be focusing on the impact of plague on one city in one year, Florence in 1630-31, and it killed about 12% of the city's population of 75,000. Our guide is Professor John Henderson, Professor Emeritus of Italian Renaissance History at Birkbeck, University of London, and Emeritus Fellow at Wolfson College, Cambridge. He's the author and editor of eight books and numerous articles and chapters exploring the history of epidemics, hospitals, healing, plague, and piety. His most recent book, however, is Florence Under Siege, Surviving Plague in an Early Modern City, which was published by Yale University Press in 2019, and won a Social History Society Prize Special Commendation the following year. Fittingly, he speaks to me from a former monastery in Florence. Professor Henderson, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to talk to you about your wonderful book and the research in it. It all seems terribly relevant to us, of course, of what we've lived through in the last few years, but we're also thinking about a very different society 400 years ago. And I suppose one of the chief challenges with that is what sort of evidence one has. So can you perhaps tell us a bit as we begin about the nature of the surviving records that have allowed you to explore the impact of plague in Florence over the course of this one year of 1630-31? Yes, by all means. I think one of the extraordinary things about working on medieval Renaissance and early modern Italy is actually the survival rate of records. It was one of the areas of the earliest urbanisation in Europe, which led to obviously the foundation of cities and led to therefore 
a whole process of record keeping. Certainly by the 17th century, there's a mass of information which has survived. And in my book, what I suppose I've tried to do is to write a sort of histoire totale as far as I can, examining the experiences and reactions of the people who lived at the time from every point of view. Therefore, I began by looking at government records, which survive in quite considerable detail. So, for example, one of the interesting things about Italian cities is that they established quite an early date, the health boards, which are essentially a sort of small group of magistracy who ran the measures that were taken against plague. And although they're not complete, they certainly do survive for this period. And we've got almost daily correspondence between the magistrates, different parts of Italy and Europe, which recount the day-by-day account. So that's one aspect. I also was very keen to try and look at the experience of individuals as well. So, for example, one has diaries, and I suppose... There's a man called Giovanni Baldinucci, for example, who wrote a very detailed diary of what it was like to live through plague. So rather like Daniel Defoe, in a sense, in London, although that obviously was a fictionalised account, but it gives a similar sort of texture of everyday life and similar sort of record of how people were feeling, which feeds into the whole area, obviously, of history of emotions as so, well, which is interesting. The other aspects I was interested in looking at were the reactions and policies of the church. And here we have decrees that were published by the church, as well as parish registers and also a certain amount of correspondence. And also just things like processions, which were recorded in great detail about how the church reacted. Also, one of the extraordinary things I think about Italy and other parts of Southern Europe is this long tradition of religious fraternities going right back to the 13th century, set up for religious and also for charitable ends. In Italy, there was no Protestant Reformation, and these institutions survive, and it was their job to pick up the plague victims, and they record all the people who they picked up and all the people they were buried. And finally, what I was interested in doing was getting a physical context, so looking at the way that the buildings that survived that were used at the time and trying to reconstruct what the physical space was like, what it was like to live and to die within that sort of context. And then finally, I looked at artistic production, which has survived from that period. So my idea was to produce this sort of all-round picture. I'm sure there are many areas that I could have filled in as well, but that was what I attempted to do. Well, that sounds like a wonderful wealth of material that you were able to draw on. And that explains why your book so successfully is able to look into all these different areas, because you've not confined yourself to just one set of sources, as many people would have done. Let's talk a little bit about the scale of this epidemic, because I've said confidently in my introduction that 12% of the 75,000 strong population died. Is it possible to be quite that confident about it? What are the problems when it comes to calculating levels of plague mortality? Do we have problems of methodology, for example? There are always possible problems of methodology. So I think all one can do is to take the best guess based on the data we have. So what I did in order to calculate my 12% was to look at the number of people who died that we know who are recorded as buried both in the plague pits, which were created during the plague, and also at the isolation hospitals or lazaretti. So we had a total figure of number of people who died. 
Then what obviously would be ideal, but I don't have, is a census before and a census afterwards. Then you just take A away from B and that's the number of people who died. So I had to do something a bit trickier, <laughs> which was that I discovered there was a census of the population which was taken in January 1631, which was halfway through the epidemic. So essentially what I did was to add a number of people I knew who'd already died in the period leading up to that and added them onto the total of the census. And then we knew that the population was roughly 75,000 so that we were able to calculate overall the rough mortality. But in this period, it's very rare to get censuses both before and both afterwards. So a lot of these figures that we have are approximate. And obviously, you have contemporaries who talk about the numbers in round terms of number of people who died. It's interesting, this is quite different from places like England, of course, where people who died of plague were buried in the parishes. And so therefore, it's more easy to make a calculation of plague mortality from the parish registers. The difference in Italy is that Italy people were taken off to be buried either in plague pits or they were taken off to the isolation hospitals where they were buried. So you can see it's a complex business because if you start looking at parish registers in Florence, for example, they specifically say they don't record plague deaths. And there's also the sort of wider question is about diagnosis. Contemporaries did complain that people were taken off to the isolation hospitals who didn't have plague. So obviously if they then caught plague when they were there, then they would die of plague, but they didn't initially go in with plague. What's so interesting about that is that it shows us that something that looks so clear, here we have a year and this many people died, <laughs> and this is the scale of the epidemic, that is not something that is absolutely concrete. It's not something that as clear as we think. And actually, interestingly, given what you've just said about their ways of trying to diagnose people, the same seems to be true when we think about the nature of the disease full stop. We approach plague and we say it's this particular bacteria, Yersinia pestis, and we have our own ideas about medicine that we quite easily impose on the past. But I was really struck by the fact that you say in your book that it's important to take 17th century medical theory seriously and that we need to avoid devaluing contemporary understandings of the disease. Can you talk me through what you mean by that and why you think that and what difference you think that makes in terms of our approach to the past? Yes, of course. At the time, what people thought caused plague was diseased air, which was spread from place to place by wind. And it was quite often generated by boggy areas that corrupt vapours came out of the bogs. Or if there were earth movements, again, the idea was that corrupt air would be released from within that and spread into the atmosphere. It spread over then areas of population and people breathed it in. Then it corrupted the humours and made the people sick. And then the people themselves who were sick breathed out corrupt air, which then infected other people. So that was the system. And it spread from place to place once it was in an area, not just through the air, but also through attaching itself to cloth in particular, impregnating cloth. And it was regarded as having a sort of sticky substance so it could stick onto walls and so on. People indeed were accused of spreading plague. So that was the basic theory at the time. So in other words, I suppose one would think of it as being, roughly speaking, a sort of miasmatic theory. I suppose the reason that I say I think it's important to take their ideas seriously is because once you start imposing our 
2021st century ideas on plague at the time is that I think it's easy to devalue what they thought and regard what they did as being completely meaningless. That makes sense. So there's nothing to be achieved by saying, gosh, how stupid these people were in the past and they didn't know this thing that we now know. And actually, (laughs) what we can do as historians is move into seeing things from their point of view if we accept their model of health and medicine. One of the words that's actually often used at this time to talk about the plague is the word contagion. But given what you've said, presumably that doesn't mean a kind of modern understanding of pathogens. So what did it signify? The word contagion, I think, is central to understanding this whole historiographical debate. Because in the past, historians have tended to view the history of public health through, if you like, a 19th century lens. So in other words, looked at the debate between the contagionists and the miasmists in the 19th century. And they've attempted to read that back. And some historians have therefore looked through records, particularly people in the 19th century and early 20th century, looked through records for the word contagion. So they look at public health records and say the disease is spread through contagion or the disease is contagion. But if you start unpicking the word contagion, in fact, at the time, it meant little more than what we would mean by infection. So in other words, it's much more generic. So built onto that historiographical debate was the notion, again, this is in the past, no longer, but was the notion that the people who ran public health believed in contagion, whereas the doctors, the medical staff, believed in infection and miasma. So they built up, if you like, the sort of artificial debate between the two. And they said, oh, the public health people knew what they were talking about because they understood contagion. So that's, in a sense, I think it illustrates quite neatly this idea of looking back at the past through a distorting lens of the 19th and 20th century. Yes, that's very helpful because that is exactly how we corrupt the past to make it look as we wish it to, as opposed to what's actually going on. So thinking about what they believed about plague, what were some of the first things that the authorities in Florence did in order to try and halt its approach when they heard that it was coming? Well, as you may be familiar with the terms containment, mitigation and quarantine, (laughs) so these three stages are the stages that one can also read back if one's allowed to, to this period. So the first reactions was a period of contagion, of containment, of contagion. And so one of the first things they did was to establish the weren't already an existing one, which would communicate with members of health boards in other parts of Italy and other parts of Europe in order to establish when plague was likely to had arrived in their part of Italy or Europe and what the mortality was and where it was moving to. So in other words, their idea was that they would be prepared. And there's an extraordinary series of these records which survive almost daily correspondence I mentioned at the very beginning, which give you a very good idea of people's reactions. And also, obviously, this meant that people were borrowing ideas and borrowing measures as well if they didn't already have them. So the health board was established. They had this active system of communication with other parts of the peninsula. Then they established cordon sanitaire around their states, which essentially meant putting a series of mounted guards to stop people coming in from other parts of the peninsula along their borders. They would ask for health passes, which are familiar to us today, which were quite detailed, and some of them do survive 
with the description of the person's name, what they looked like, the colour of their hair, their stature and so on. And the fact that they'd come from a city which was clean, as it were, where plague hadn't broken out. The system of cordon sanitaire didn't always work, and we've got example of people who managed to get through one way or another. And if you think about I mean, Tuscany, which was there I've been looking at, I mean, just think of the enormous frontier that it's got, particularly to the north. But obviously one of the things which it had to its advantage is there were mountains between it and northern Italy. And I think one of the interesting things that people debate is the effectiveness of cordon sanitaire. And a lot of historians seem to agree that probably the cordon sanitaire did actually work, although it obviously had some sort of holes in its system. And some measure of that is that when the plague arrived in Italy, it essentially had two episodes. So the first one it arrived in 1629 in northern Italy with both the imperial and the French troops. It spread to Como, Garda, Milan, Venice and further south. And essentially it stopped for a while. It went to Verona, went to Bologna and then this was the one that hit Florence. But it took from October of 1629 to the summer of 1630 for it to arrive in Florence. Now what is extraordinary is that the plague only hit northern Italy in that time. So the question is, why didn't it move further south? And maybe it's to do with Colossae, maybe it's to do with the geographical and territorial shape of the country. But when the plague came back, as it did in the 1650s, so 10 years before the Great Plague of London, it only hit southern Italy except for Genoa. So the question is, may simply be happen chance. It may be because of the topographical layout of the peninsula, but it may very well be because of the cordon sanitaire. So those were, if you like, some of the measures that were taken in order to prevent the plague spreading once it had arrived. You mentioned earlier some of these kind of miasmic theories that existed at the time about the spread of the plague through the air. And can we talk a bit more about that connection that was made between filth and squalor and noxious smells and the transmission of the disease. Yes, as I said earlier, that idea of corrupt air was completely central to the whole idea of what plague consisted of and how it was spread. And one of the places which they thought plague came from was from the sort of rotting matter in bogs. Now, this is something that I think in the 16th century people began becoming more and more aware of. In other words, the link between physical environment, health and disease, and this was on the back of the revival of the Neo-Hippocratic treatise on airs, waters and places, which became increasingly popular from the middle of the 16th century onwards. And this infused medical thinking even more than it had before, and also infused, obviously, therefore, the advisors to the health board and the health board officials themselves. But having said that, it also derives from a long medieval tradition of sanitary legislation, where the aim was to prevent the smelly occupations like the butchery of animals and so on within the centre of the city, particularly during periods of plague, from taking place there. Greater concentration on cleaning streets and so on. I think what came up on the back of this Neopocratic revival was that in Tuscany we see a series of sanitary surveys from the late 16th century onwards, which were instituted both in the city and also in the countryside. 
The aim of that was literally to go from street to street to look at the sort of sanitary conditions. And there was one established right at the beginning of the epidemic in August 1630. And a series of gentlemen of the court were appointed to undertake the sanitary survey. And they went from house to house throughout the city, listing the number of leaking cesspits, or pozzineri as they called black wells, and also the number of mattresses which needed to be replaced because they were insanitary. So in other words, they saw the link between insanitary conditions smell and disease, which they saw as one of the main causes of plague. Now, a link to that is their notion of the sort of link between poverty, obviously, and disease. And so there was a medical theory at the time which actually blamed the poor for causing plague, not partly because of their behaviour in mixing with people even during epidemics, but also there's a slightly more sinister theory, which is that the poor, because they hadn't got much money, would eat food of bad quality, which would then corrupt their humours, which meant they would then become ill, breathe out the corrupt air, which would then infect the air of the city and infect their social betters. I mean, this is rather a sort of 17th century idea. But anyhow, so in a sense, this led to once again, this sort of link between the environment, how people lived, and the poor in particular, and the link between that and plague. And this was something that also is very evident in the 16th, 17th century England, as well as Italy in this period. What's interesting, however, is that by carrying out these surveys, it produces this documentation that gives us an incredible insight into the kind of miserable conditions in which the poor were living. Does it tell us things that we wouldn't otherwise know? It certainly tells one about smells. <laughs> it certainly tells one about the meanness of landlords who were not prepared to empty the cesspits, because at this time there were no proper sewers in Florence, and they relied on these pozzineri or cesspits to be emptied on a regular basis. Thinking more broadly, in conjunction with contemporary censuses which survived for this period, I mean, the censuses provide you with information about how many people were per household. These are general censuses of the population of their occupations, the rough ages of people, whether they were adults or children, and putting that together with contemporary maps and also these sanitary surveys, I think does add certainly another dimension, which one can then also map onto other types of sources, such as petitions from contemporaries, when they were bothered about smells causing plague. And this is not during plague, but a bit earlier than this period. There's a record of the members of a parish just to the south of the Riverano who gang together and send a petition to the health board and say, look, we are alarmed because the Riverano is getting choked up with effluence and it's causing an incredible stink. We remember 10 years ago that the Riverano had the same problem and it caused a lot of disease. Do something about it. So in other words, it also links into a sort of wider dimension of living conditions and contemporaries' perception of what caused disease, which is why, again, I emphasise this period, how important it is to take that into account. But going to what you said about the poor being sort of held responsible in some ways for the plague spreading, does the plague serve sort of as an excuse to persecute the poor? It certainly does certain elements of society. And certainly the people who were blamed for spreading plague were beggars. 
and phenomenon throughout Europe. So what they essentially did was to divide local beggars from beggars from outside the city, not just outside the parish. And they sent away at the beginning of the epidemic all the beggars who were from outside Florence. And then they enclosed the beggars in a recently founded Ospedale dei Mendicanti, or Hospital of Beggars. And there they were kept during the period of the plague. So those are the beggars, and they were certainly more marginalised. It depends who you mean by poor. <laughs> Contemporary definitions is very complex, as I always tell my students, and applying modern definitions is sometimes helpful and sometimes not. But I think one of the things that I came away from this book, which really surprised me, actually, yes, there certainly was this sort of medical theory which was very damning of the poor and the way that they caused the plague, but one of the things which struck me in particular was the extraordinary compassion of contemporaries towards the poor. So these men who went round on the sanitary surveys not just wrote lists of smelly cesspits, but they also described in detail their reactions and saying how horrified they were. They had no idea that people lived in such conditions. I'm not sure I take that entirely for granted because they lived around the corner. But clearly they were very moved by this. And I think one of the extraordinary things is during this particular epidemic is that the Grand Duke, who's a young man who'd recently taken over the Grand Duchy, wanted to make a good impression. And he adopted the sort of tradition of Medici family charity. And he remained in the city throughout the epidemic and actually walked through the city cheering people on, as it were, and also provided money and the government provided money for giving subsidies to the poor who were shut up in their houses, for example, or people who were unemployed. He provided work assignments for them to do. Yes, there is a feeling that the poor were marginalised. It's much less black and white than I think one's often led to believe. Did you know that the earliest condoms were made of animal guts and they were designed to be reused? Or that beans were once considered to be an aphrodisiac. Join me, Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex, scandal and society, a new podcast from History Hit, where I, Kate Lister, ask the questions about the stuff we didn't learn in history lessons, or sex ed. We'll be bed-hopping around different time periods, from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages, to Renaissance and early modern, right up to now. Listen and subscribe to Betwixt the Sheets now wherever you get your podcasts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is After Dark. Myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit.
fascinated, however, to read in your book that another group that was held to blame for the plague was prostitutes. What was the rationale for this? So prostitutes were not exactly blamed for the plague, but they were blamed for making the plague worse through their immoral activity. So in other words, there's the link between moral corruption and physical corruption. They were also found visiting houses which had been shut up or allowing people from infected houses to come and visit them. They also were blamed for encouraging crowds of rowdy men to stand outside their houses making a racket and spreading plague. So it was just part of that wider misogynistic culture, if you like, from counter-ref 16th century and counter-reformation Italy, which more generally marginalised prostitutes and blamed them for the immorality of society. So plague has broken out. There are these initial containment measures. What further public health measures were taken when the plague had well and truly arrived? The cordon sanitaire hadn't worked, it had broken through. How did they try to manage the outbreak? So there were a whole series of measures that were taken, some of which are familiar to us in the last few years. One of them is the attempt to trace patient zero. In this particular case, it was a chicken dealer who'd arrived from Bologna trying to sell his chickens in the city, He got to the city gates and he was told he'd come from Bologna, so he was sent back. And he arrived in a small village called Trespiana, which is about five miles to the north of Florence, where he fell ill, infected the innkeeper, and plague broke out in Trespiano. It was contained, but people from Trespiano, then some of them moved into Florence and spread plague. So in other words... The first cases were traced with enormous interest. We know exactly who they were, where they lived and all the rest of it. So you can actually plot the different parts of Florence that were infected. So once that was plague had broken out, the sort of familiar provisions were taken. People were supposed to maintain social distancing. Public places like schools, taverns were closed down. Butchery was banned in the centre of the city. And one of the things that they enforced was the prohibition of selling second-hand clothes because obviously people were selling clothes that had belonged to people with plague. So when plague broke out in a particular house, the members of the health board went along and marked the house, locked up the house, and they sent the person who was sick off to one of these major hospitals where they remained until they got better or died, because not everybody died. People who had been in contact with them were either then shut up in the house or taken off into separate quarantine centres. And obviously the dead were buried as well in either plague pits or at the quarantine centres themselves. Now, one of the things I think I mentioned at the very beginning, this tradition of the confraternity or the religious brotherhood as being central to the plague measures. And one of the ones which was central was called the Misericordia, which was a 13th century charitable fraternity, which actually was responsible in the early 17th century of picking up plague victims taking them to the hospitals and burying the people who had died. They actually still are active today and they run the ambulance service in Florence. The seat is just opposite the cathedral. There was then a change of policy in January 1631 when they thought the plague wasn't improving as much as it should have been. So they instituted a total lockdown for 40 days of the city. 40 days, quaranta quarantine, meaning 40 in Italian. And Everybody had to remain within their houses. 34,000 people were fed 
and given food and drink on a daily basis, free, by the city. The rich obviously had to pay for the food for themselves, and one male adult was allowed to go out and collect the food and bring it back. But otherwise people had to remain within their houses. The plague did get better, whether it was due to the quarantine or other reasons isn't very unclear. So those were the basic measures. Then obviously all this was enforced through a wide range of punishments as well. So let's talk about those punishments. What were the punishments for breaking quarantine and were the elites who could break them with impunity? As with most things, it's slightly complicated, but certainly the punishments were not complicated. What is interesting is that there's only one person was executed, which was a young man, a gardener at the beginning of the epidemic, who'd broken into houses and then broken into another one, then broken into another one. He's obviously recalcitrant and couldn't be. And he was executed probably to give an example so that other people didn't try to adopt his ways of life. Otherwise, one of the most severe types of punishment, which was most unpleasant, which was very painful, which was somebody was hung up with a rope underneath their arms. They were hung up and then dropped, which obviously meant their shoulders and their arms were dislocated. The number of times that was done depended on how severe their crime was. Secondly, and this is where a number of the prostitutes appear, they were shamed by being put onto the back of a donkey with their crime written in a big letters around their neck of what they'd done. People threw rotten tomatoes and so on them as they would process through the city. Otherwise, people were fined or imprisoned for short periods. And I think, again, going back to my theme of greater compassion than perhaps we would imagine from this period, is that the vast majority of people were actually let off either being imprisoned just for a couple of days or given a small fine. Something like 70% of people were let off with very little punishment indeed. But obviously being in prison wouldn't have been very pleasant. It was a punishment. But in other words, it's a very different picture than from other parts of Italy where people were punished much more severely and executions were much, much more severe. Why do you think that was? (laughs) I wish I could answer that convincingly. I think it may be partly due to the fact that the epidemic was fairly mild. So it was 12% compared with 35%, 40% in Milan or 60% in Verona. So in other words, in northern Italy, it was much, much worse. Bologna, it was 25%. So it may have been they felt that it was perhaps not so necessary to make an example. I think the other thing which one has to think about is the political configuration of the city. It was a grand duchy, the young grand duke had just come to power, and he wanted to give the impression of being charitable. And he involved a lot of members of his court, as well as senators and so on, in all the provisions that were made. In other cities, I think in Rome, for example, where punishments were much more severe, I think was the combination of the sort of city and the papal government, which enforced the punishments. So it's something that needs exploring further, but all I can say is that Florence was more fortunate. (laughs) And what were the reactions to this quarantine? Did people resist or do we see on the other side that people were quite keen to denounce their neighbours for breaking the rules? I think this is where this extraordinary collection of over 550 trial records of this period is so marvellous because it gives one a very good idea of people's reactions. 
But that's 550 cases out of a population of 75,000. And obviously it was only the tip of the iceberg. Those were the only people who were caught, obviously. That they've tried getting round the rules, so they'd go and visit friends in houses around the corner, they'd break into closed up houses. There were examples of people going to taverns or playing cards and so on. But I think a lot of it's got to do as well with trying, in a sense, to maintain a more normal way of life during an abnormal time. There are cases of people going to houses where their relatives have been taken off to the isolation hospital and although they've been locked up, getting through the barrier and removing some of the more valuable things in case other people stole them first. And so people were arrested for that. But I think the other thing which emerges from this period as well is, rather as we've seen again over the last couple of years, the compassion of people at the local level for each other. And what examples of people feeling loneliness. I think these records also demonstrate people's emotions, their fear, their loneliness and so on, and helping neighbours as well. But talking of neighbours, there was also a neighbourhood watch, which was encouraged by the government. So they were called Amici Segretio, secret friends. These were people who were actually paid to report on their neighbours if they saw them breaking the rule. And they were given quite substantial sums of money. So that one gets an impression of people peering behind net curtains, as it were, and looking to see what's going on. There's one example of a couple of lads who were seen by a woman in the house across the road who'd put up a ladder against a wall, climbed over the wall into the garden of a deserted house and walked off with things. So the police of the Sanitar, the health board, came along later on and interviewed everybody. Locals were interviewed and they said, ah, yes, I remember those boys, they were young lads, and they made a hole in the wall. You can just see below the top of the wall where they put their foot. So you get these sort of, again, very good idea of how people were reported. Now, whether that was money or whether it was a genuine sense of civic responsibility, I think perhaps one should leave with a question mark. But it's very interesting because what you're saying is that these trial records that you've analysed give us some insight into the kind of survival strategies that people were adopting, the way of either trying to regain property they had lost or to have ways in which they could carry on with a normal life, either that's socialising or getting food or whatever it is. Was that what really spoke to you in your analysis of them? It was. And I think here one enters an area with which you are familiar in your book, is about how to analyse and how much to believe these trial records. So the way that I approached it was partly a quantitative analysis and partly a qualitative analysis. And at the beginning, I thought, having read a lot of microhistory and thinking one can't believe what people say too much because they're mediated through a trial record, which then obviously means that people are asked questions in certain ways to elicit certain sorts of answers. So I talked to lots of colleagues who work in this area and I thought, yes, I must be cautious. But at a certain point, I think one feels that you have to listen to what they're saying as well, listen to the texture of what they're saying, obviously within the wider context of the records which preserve those comments. So I think what was remarkable for me was that I did feel, perhaps naively, these people were talking to me within the constraints, the type of record that that I had. And they very much do give an idea of how to survive in this period. So some continued to try and work, 
And there's an example of a woman who's arrested in Piazza Strozzi, for example, who's interviewed by the judge. He's asked what she's doing there. So she says, I'm poor. My husband, who's unemployed, is a second-hand clothes dealer. And I'm trying to do whatever I can in order to survive. And so I'm trying to sell some of this cloth. And so he said, well, you can't do that. It's probably from a plague victim. Anyhow, she's arrested and then interviewed and then let off. I think she's seen as not great threat to the community. But I think it's by teasing out that relationship between authority and the people who are interviewed that you can really get a very good idea of those strategies that they do adopt. And as I say, supporting each other is another example of a house which is locked up because a woman had been taken off to Lazaretta and has left two little girls behind. One of the neighbours downstairs reports the little girls who'd gone upstairs to see their friends on the top floor because they were dancing and obviously making quite a racket. And this was during a time when we're all supposed to be very serious during the plague when God is punishing us. And But what is extraordinary about those records is it provides you an idea of the Mika Segreto, the secret friend who's doing the denunciation, but also the family on the top floor who clearly were looking after these two girls not just allowing them to dance, but probably feeding them as well. So you do get an idea of communities within houses, these different apartments, communities within streets as well, and how indeed they do support each other. As well as this amazing work that you've done, I mean, as you said, over 550 cases of these prosecutions, you've also looked, this is why this book is quite so impressive, at the creation of the isolation hospitals that you mentioned earlier, the Lazaretti and if people thought it was bad in quarantine, the incarceration of these people in the isolation hospitals over the course of a year must have been really quite terrible, at least to the outside. What do you think the conditions of life were in these institutions? What would it have been like to be a patient in one of them? The strength of Italian sources is that we'd have an almost daily correspondence, certainly two or three times a week correspondence from the director's of the Lazzaretti and the health board, telling you about daily conditions and about the number of people arriving, the fact that times where four or five people were put into the bed together, there was some terrible smell, a number of bodies in the graves was becoming too great and having to create new graves and so on. So we do get a very good idea of what it was like not from the patient's point of view, alas, and we've got no patient records, at least from Florence, but we get a very good idea of what the authorities thought. And it is heartrending because, again, if you like, it reflects what we've been going through. The pressure on doctors, the description of the doctors who, were, who got sick themselves or were just completely exhausted because they were living in the premises and working through the night as well. So one gets quite a good idea of conditions. There are also descriptions from other parts of Italy in Genoa, Venice, Milan and so on, which parallel the sort of conditions which are reflected here. One of the things I'd like to mention is that one of the things which distinguishes public health measures against plague in southern Europe, at least in this period, are these vast lazaretti or isolation hospitals, which had been founded from the late 15th century onwards, either in buildings that they built for ex novo or else in converted monasteries, as was the case in Florence. And contemporaries said that the Lazzaretti were the reason that plague was actually conquered. I think maybe one should question that because what is interesting if you compare mortality in a city like Florence or 
in other cities where there were less. It was certainly no less and sometimes much more than in a city like London, which, although it did have some pestilences, were not, certainly not on those sort of scale. So I think one can reconstruct. And also what I've tried to do is one of the main buildings which was taken over as a Lazzaretto was the Romanesque church of San Miniato al Monte. So I took photographs of it. I walked around it and thought, well, how is this space used? How were the beds laid out? And try to match that up to some of the descriptions in the letters which were sent to the health board by the people who worked there. And they also give you a good idea of the medical treatment as well, which contemporaries at a certain point when mortality was going down said was actually the reason that plague was getting better and mortality was diminishing. So this was a sort of combination of the sort of lancing of buboes, the scarification of buboes, the giving of the miracle drug of theriac, which was a poison to treat poison, which was made up, among other ingredients, of the pulverised poison from vipers' tails, which contemporaries said worked very well. But mortality remained high, so something like 50% of people who went into the Lazzaretto did actually die. But then that raises the question, what about the other 50%? In other words, not everybody dies, which might be one's assumption. But there was also, again, my court cases tell me examples of people who were breaking the law, People who worked there were selling sheets and food and throwing them out of windows and they were being taken off to be sold in the city. Court cases in particular, and these extraordinary letters, do actually enable one to produce a much more nuanced picture of the relationship, if you like, between the authorities and the people who were obviously much more active than one might assume just from looking at legal records or from laws and so on. Are there any individual cases that have especially stayed with you in your work on these trial records? I think I've mentioned a lot of them, but I might just end with two, both of them from very short cases from the southern part of the city. One of them was a very short account of an elderly woman who was arrested. And she said that she'd left her house, she'd been seen by her house, which was locked up during the quarantine. And she chased after a chicken. She said, it's going clack, clack. She tried to grab her chicken, which was clearly she'd been looking after in her house or in her courtyard. She was arrested and they interviewed her and said, you can go home, that's fine. So again, that gives you a picture of a woman in action, rather like some of the pictures at the time of people running. The other one is, again, a very short case of a terraced house with a woman who lived two floors above her son. And this was probably a totally normal thing. But she was accused of communicating with her son by letting down a basket in order he could put his socks in it to be repaired. So you get an idea of the relationship between the mother and the son. But you also get a good idea of what normally happens. The mother was mending the son's socks. She again was arrested very briefly and then sent home again. I love the insights into ordinary life and life under stress that those cases give us. Now, I want to ask you one more question. Obviously, we don't want to overstate the similarities between plague in 17th century Florence and what we've lived through in the last few years. But it must have been fascinating for you, having finished this research, to go through a parallel situation Was it instructive for you in your thinking about the past? Did it change any way that you had configured the past in your mind? I published this book in autumn 2019, and then we were all faced with some of the main similar threats just a few months later. Obviously, I've talked to many people, many journalists about this since. 
and thought about parallels. And obviously there are parallels, and some of them I've talked about, the sort of division in three stages of public health. So in other words, some of the public health measures which had emerged in Renaissance Italy became the basis of measures against other diseases like cholera and so on, but also, in a sense, one can see with these large isolation hospitals, like the Nightingale Isolation Hospital, had parallels with what I'd seen before. But I think the other thing which emerges from my book is the people's compassion as well for their neighbours, for the poor and so on. And I saw this as being something that once again emerged and one saw it as people helping neighbours during Covid as well. There are lots of different parallels, but I think it certainly made me rethink how there is a sort of continuity in human reactions, which in a sense reinforced what I concluded in my book. And I was able to therefore think of Covid through the lens of plague and vice versa. That's very interesting. Well, thank you so much for talking to us about your research. And I do urge those who'd like to know more about your work to pick up a copy of Florence Under Siege because it's a very clearly written, thoughtful, fascinating study of a year in a city with an epidemic raging. Professor Henderson, thank you so much for your time. And thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor and Not Just the Tudor love. And you can also have your additional weekly booster jab with our Tudor Tuesday newsletter, with news of History Hit's best podcasts, articles, and films. Find out more at historyhit.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.